When Vimes had gone, Lord Vetinari sat at his desk for a while, staring at nothing. Then he took a key from a drawer and walked across to a wall where he pressed a particular area. There was a rattle of a counterweight. The wall swung back. The patrician walked softly through the narrow passageway beyond. Here and there it was illuminated by a very faint glow from around the edges of the little panels which, if gently slid back, would allow someone to look out through the eye sockets of a handy portrait. They were a relic of a previous ruler. Vetinari never bothered with them. Looking out of someone else's eyes wasn't the trick. There was a certain amount of travel up dark stairways and along musty corridors. Occasionally he'd make movements the meaning of which might not be readily apparent. He'd touch a wall here and here, apparently without thinking as he passed. Along one stone-flagged passage, lit only by the grey light from a window forgotten by everyone except the most optimistic flies, he appeared to play a game of hopscotch, robes flying around him and calves twinkling as he skipped from stone to stone. These various activities did not seem to cause anything to happen. Eventually, he reached a door which he unlocked. He did this with some caution. The air beyond was full of acrid smoke, and the steady pop-pop sound which he had begun to hear further back along the passage was now quite loud. It faltered for a moment, was followed by a much louder bang, and then a piece of hot metal whirled past the patrician's ear and buried itself in the wall. In the smoke, a voice said, Oh, dear. It didn't seem unhappy, but sounded rather like the voice one might use to a sweet and ingratiating little puppy, which, despite one's best efforts, is sitting next to a spreading damp patch on the carpet. As the billows cleared, the indistinct shape of the speaker turned to Vetinari with a wan little smile and said, Fully fifteen seconds this time, my lord. There is no doubt that the principle is sound. That was one of Leonard of Quirm's traits. He picked up conversations out of the air, he assumed everyone was an interested friend, and he took it for granted that you were as intelligent as he was. Vetinari appeared at a small heap of bent and twisted metal. What was it, Leonard? he said. An experimental device for turning chemical energy into rotary motion, said Leonard. The problem, you see, is getting the little pellets of black powder into the combustion chamber at exactly the right speed and one at a time. If two ignite together, well, what we have is the external combustion engine. And uh, what would be the purpose of it? said the patrician. I believe it could replace the horse, said Leonard proudly. They looked at the stricken thing. One of the advantages of horses that people often point out, said Vetinari after some thought, is that they very seldom explode. Almost never, in my experience, apart from that unfortunate occurrence in the hot summer a few years ago. With fastidious fingers, he pulled something out of the mess. It was a pair of cubes made out of some soft white fur and linked together by a piece of string. There were dots on them. "'Dice,' he said. Leonard smiled in an embarrassed fashion. "'Yes. I can't think why I thought they'd help it go better. It was just, well, an idea. <laughs> you know how it is?' Lord Vetinari nodded. He knew how it was. He knew how it was far more than Leonard of Quirm did, which was why there was one key to the door, and he had it. Not that the man was a prisoner, except by dull humdrum standards.' 
He appeared rather grateful to be confined in this light, airy attic with as much wood, paper, sticks of charcoal and paint as he desired, and no rent or food bills to pay. In any case, you couldn't really imprison someone like Leonard of Quirm. The most you could do was lock up his body. The gods alone knew where his mind went. And although he had so much cleverness it leaked continually, he couldn't tell you which way the political wind was blowing, even if you fitted him with sails. Leonard's incredible brain sizzled away alarmingly, an overloaded chip pan on the stove of life. It was impossible to know what he would think of next, because he was constantly reprogrammed by the whole universe. The sight of a waterfall or a soaring bird would send him spinning down some new path of practical speculation that invariably ended in a heap of wire and springs and a cry of, I think I know what I did wrong. He'd been a member of most of the craft guilds in the city, but had been thrown out for getting impossibly high marks in the exams, or in some cases, correcting the questions. It was said that he'd accidentally blown up the alchemist's guild, using nothing more than a glass of water, a spoonful of acid, two lengths of wire and a ping-pong ball. Any sensible ruler would have killed off Leonard, and Lord Vetinari was extremely sensible, and often wondered why he had not done so. He decided that it was because, imprisoned in the priceless inquiring amber of Leonard's massive mind, underneath all that bright investigative genius, was a kind of willful innocence that might in lesser men be called stupidity. It was the seat and soul of that force, which down the millennia had caused mankind to stick its fingers in the electric light socket of the universe, and play with the switch to see what happened, and then be very surprised when it did. It was, in short, something useful, and if the patrician was anything, he was the political equivalent of the old lady who saves bits of string because you never know when they might come in handy. After all, you couldn't plan for every eventuality because that would involve knowing what was going to happen, and if you knew what was going to happen, you could probably see to it that it didn't, or at least happened to someone else so the patrician never planned. Plans often got in the way. And finally, he kept Leonard around because the man was easy to talk to. He never understood what Lord Vetinari was talking about. He had a world view about as complex as that of a concussed duckling, and above all, never really paid attention. This made him an excellent confidant. After all, when you seek advice from someone, it's certainly not because you want them to give it. You just want them to be there while you talk to yourself. I've just made some tea, said Leonard. Will you join me? He followed the patrician's gaze to a brown stain all up one wall, which ended in a star of molten metal in the plaster. I'm afraid the automatical tea engine went wrong, he said. I shall have to make it by hand. So kind, said Lord Vetinari. He sat down amidst the easels, and while Leonard busied himself at the fireplace, leafed through the latest sketches. Leonard sketched as automatically as other people scratched. Genius, a certain kind of genius, fell off him like dandruff. There was a picture of a man drawing, the lines catching the figure so accurately it appeared to stand out of the paper, and around it, because Leonard never wasted white space, were other sketches scattered aimlessly, a thumb, a bowl of flowers, a device apparently for sharpening pencils by water power. Vetinari found what he was looking for in the bottom left-hand corner, sandwiched between a sketch for a new type of screw and a tool for opening oysters. It, or something very much like it, was always there, somewhere. One of the things that made Leonard such a rare prize, and kept him under such secure lock and key, was that he really didn't see any difference between the thumb and the roses and the pencil sharpener, and this. 
Ah, the self-portrait, said Leonard, returning with two cups. Yes, indeed, said Vetinari, but my eye was drawn to this little sketch here, the war machine. Oh, that, uh, mere nothing. Have you ever noticed the way in which the dew on roses? This bit here, what is it for? said Vetinari, pointing persistently. Oh, that, that's just the throwing arm for the balls of molten sulphur, said Leonard, picking up a plate of small cakes. I calculate that one should get a range of almost half a mile, huh, if one detaches the endless belt from the driving wheels and uses the oxen to wind the windlass. Really, said Vetinari, taking in the carefully numbered parts. And it could be built? What? Oh, yes. Macaroon? In theory. In theory. No one would ever actually do it. Raining unquenchable fire down upon fellow humans? <laughs> Leonard sprayed macaroon crumbs. You'd never find an artisan to build it, or a soldier who would pull the lever. <laughs> That's part 3B on the plan, just here, look. Ah, yes, said Vetinari. Anyway... He added, I imagine these huge power arms here couldn't possibly be operated without them breaking. Season Dash and you laminated and held together by special steel bolts, said Leonard promptly. I made a few calculations just there below the sketch of light on a raindrop as an intellectual exercise, obviously. Vetinari ran his eye along several lines of Leonard's spidery mirror writing. Oh, yes, he said glumly. He put the paper aside. Have I told you that the Clatchian situation is intensely political? Prince Kadram is trying to do a great deal very fast. He needs to consolidate his position. He is depending on support that is somewhat volatile. There are many plotting against him, I understand. Really? Well, this is the sort of thing people do, said Leonard. Incidentally, I've recently been examining cobwebs, and I know this will interest you. Their strength in relation to their weight is much greater even than our best steel wire. Isn't that fascinating? What kind of weapon do you intend to make out of them? said the patrician. Sorry? Oh, nothing. I was just thinking aloud. And you haven't touched your tea, said Leonard. Vetinari looked around the room. It was full of things, tubes and odd paper kites, and things that looked like the skeletons of ancient beasts. One of Leonard's saving graces, in a very real sense, from Vetinari's point of view, was his strange attention span. It wasn't that he soon got bored with things. He didn't seem to get bored with anything. But since he was interested in everything in the universe all the time, the end result tended to be that an experimental device for disemboweling people at a distance then became a string-weaving machine and ended up as an instrument for ascertaining the specific gravity of cheese. He was as easily distracted as a kitten. All that business with the flying machine, for example, giant bat wings hung from the ceiling even now. The patrician had been more than happy to let him waste his time on that idea because it was obvious to anyone that no human being would ever be able to flap the wings hard enough. He needn't have worried. Leonard was his own distraction. He had ended up spending ages designing a special tray so that people could eat their meals in the air. 
a truly innocent man. And yet always, always some little part of him would sketch these wretchedly beguiling engines, with their clouds of smoke and carefully numbered engineering diagrams. What's this? Vetinari said, pointing to yet another doodle. It showed a man holding a large metal sphere. That, oh, oh, something of a toy, really, makes use of the strange properties of some otherwise quite useless metals. They don't like being squeezed, <laughs> so they go bang, hmm, with extreme alacrity. Another weapon? Certainly not, my lord. It would be no possible use as a weapon. I did think it might have a place in the mining industries, though. Really? For when they need to move mountains out of the way? Tell me, Vetinari said, putting this paper aside as well, you don't have any relatives in Clatch, do you? I don't believe so. My family lived in Quirm for generations. Oh, good. But, uh, very clever people in Clatch, are they? Oh, in many disciplines they practically wrote the scroll... Fine metalwork, for example. Metalwork, the patrician sighed. And alchemy, of course. Afia Alchema's Principia Explosia has been the seminal work for more than a hundred years. Alchemy, said the patrician glumly. Sulphur and so forth. Yes, indeed. But the way you put it, these major achievements were some considerable time ago. Lord Betinari sounded like a man straining to see a light at the end of the tunnel. Certainly, I would be astonished if they haven't made considerable progress, said Leonard of Quirm happily. Ah, the patrician sank a little in his chair. It had turned out that the end of the tunnel was on fire. A splendid people with much to recommend them, said Leonard. I always thought it was the presence of the desert. It leads to an Urgency of thought, it makes you aware of the briefness of life. The patrician glanced at another page. Between a sketch of a bird's wing and a careful drawing of a ball joint was a little doodle of something with spiked wheels and spinning blades. And then there was the device for moving mountains aside. The desert is not required, he said. He sighed again and pushed the pages aside. Have you heard about the lost continent of Leshp? he said. Oh, yes, I did some sketches there a few years ago, said Leonard. Some interesting aspects, I recall. More tea? I fear you've let that one get cold. Was there anything you particularly wanted? The patrician pinched the bridge of his nose. I'm not sure. There is a small... Problem developing. I thought perhaps you could help. Unfortunately, the patrician glanced at the sketches again. I suspect that you can. He stood up, straightened his robe, and forced a smile. You have everything that you require? Some more wire would be nice, said Leonard, and I have run out of burnt umber. I shall have some sent along directly, said Vetinari. And now, if you will excuse me, he let himself out. Leonard nodded happily as he cleared away the teacups. The infernal combustion engine was carried to the heap of scrap metal beside the small forge, and he fetched a ladder and removed the piston from the ceiling. He'd just opened out his easel to start working on a new design when he was aware of a distant pattering. 
It sounded like someone running, but also occasionally pausing to hop sideways on one leg. Then there was a pause, such as might be made by someone adjusting their clothing and getting their breath back. The door opened and the patrician returned. He sat down and looked carefully at Leonard of Quirm. You did what? he said. Vimes turned the clove over and over under the magnifying glass. I see tooth marks, he said. Yes, sir, said Littlebottom, who represented in her entirety the watch's forensic department. Looks like someone was chewing it like a toothpick. Vimes sat back. I would say, he said, that this was last touched by a swarthy man of about my height. He had several gold teeth and a beard, and a slight cast in one eye, scarred. He was carrying a large weapon, curved, I'd say, and you'd have to call what he was wearing a turban because it wasn't moving fast enough to be a badger. Littlebottom looked astonished. Detectoring is like gambling, said Vimes, putting down the clove. The secret is to know the winner in advance. Thank you, Corporal. Write down that description and make sure everyone gets a copy, please. He goes by the name of 71-hour Ahmed, heaven knows why, and then go and get some rest. Vimes turned to face Carrot and Angua, who had crammed into the tiny little room and nodded at the girl. I followed the clove smell all the way down to the docks, she said. And then? Then I lost it. Angua looked embarrassed. I didn't have any trouble through the fish market, sir, or in the slaughterhouse district. And then it went into the spice market. Ah, oh, I see. And didn't come out again? In a way, sir. Or came out going fifty different ways. Sorry. Can't be helped. Carrot? I did what you said, sir. The top of the opera house is about the right distance from our archery butts. I used a bow just like the one he used, sir. Vimes raised a finger. Carrot stared and then slowly said, Like the one you found next to him? Right. And? It's a burly and strong in the arm, sure shot five, sir. A bow for the expert. I'm not a great bowman, but I could at least hit the target at that elevation. But I'm ahead of you, said Vimes. You're a big lad, Carrot. Our late Ossie had arms like Nobby. I could put my hand round them. Yes, sir. It's a hundred-pound draw. I doubt if he could even pull the string back. I'd hate to watch him try. Good grief, the only thing he could be sure of hitting with a bow like that would be his foot. By the way, do you think anyone saw you up there? I doubt it, sir. I was right in among the chimneys and the air vents. Vimes sighed. Captain, I expect if you'd done it in a cellar at midnight, his lordship would have said, wasn't it rather dark down there next morning? He took out the by now rather creased picture. There was Carrot, or at least Carrot's arm and ear, as he ran towards the procession. And there, among the people in the procession, turning to look at him, was the face of the prince. There was no sign of 71-hour Ahmed. He'd been at the soiree, hadn't he? But then there'd been all that milling around at the door, people changing places, treading on one another's robes, nipping back to the privy, walking into one another. He could have gone anywhere. And the prince fell as you got to him, with the arrow in his back. He was still facing you. Yes, sir, I'm sure of that. Everyone else was milling around, of course. So he was shot in the back by a man in front of him who could not possibly have used the bow that he didn't shoot him with from the wrong direction. There was a tapping at the window. That'll be down, Spout, said Vimes without looking round. I sent him on an errand. Downspout never quite fitted in. It wasn't that he didn't get on with people, because he hardly ever met people, except those whose activities took them above, say, second-floor level. 
Constable Downspout's beat was the rooftops. Very slowly. He'd come down for the watch's hog's watch party and had poured gravy into his ears to show willing, but gargoyles got very nervy indoors at ground level and he had soon exited via the chimney and his paper squeaker had echoed out forlornly amongst the snowy rooftops all night. But gargoyles were good at watching and good at remembering and very, very good at being patient. Vimes opened the window. Moving jerkily, Downspout unfolded himself into the room and then quickly scrambled up onto a corner of Vimes's desk for the comfort that it brought. Angua and Carrot stared at the arrow the gargoyle held in his hand. Ah, well done, said Vimes in the same even voice. Where did you find it, Downspout? Downspout spluttered a series of guttural syllables only pronounceable by someone with a mouth shaped like a pipe. In the wall on the second floor of the dress shop in the Plaza of Broken Moons, Carrot translated. <laughs> said Downspout. That's barely halfway to Sartor Square, sir. Yes, said Vimes. A small, weak man trying to pull a heavy bow. The arrow wobbling all over the place. Thank you very much, Downspout. There will be an extra pigeon for you this week. <laughs> said Downspout and clambered back out of the window. Excuse me, sir, said Angua. She took the arrow from Vimes and, closing her eyes, sniffed at it gingerly. Oh, yes, Aussie, she said, all over it. Thank you, Corporal. It's as well to be sure. Carrot took the arrow from the werewolf and looked at it critically. Huh, peacock feathers and a plated point. It's the sort of thing an amateur buys because he thinks it'll magically improve his shot. Showy. Right, said Vimes. You, Carrot, and you, Angua, you're on the case. Sir, I don't understand, said Carrot. I am perplexed. I thought you said Fred and Nobby were investigating this. Yes, said Vimes. But Sergeant Colon and Corporal Nobbs are investigating why the late Ossie tried to kill the Prince. And you know what? They're going to find lots of clues. I just know it. I can feel it in my water. But we know he couldn't have, said Carrot. Isn't this fun? said Vimes. I don't want you to get in Fred's way. Just, uh, ask around. Try Dunnit Duncan or Sidney Lopsides. <laughs> There's a man with his ear to the ground, all right. Or the Agony Aunts, or Lily Goodtime, or Mr Slider. Haven't seen him around for a while, but... He's dead, sir. What? Smelly Slider? When? Last month, sir. He got hit by a falling bedstead. Freak accident, sir. No one told me. You were busy, sir, but you put some money in the envelope when Fred brought it round, sir. Ten dollars, which Fred remarked was very generous. Vimes sighed. Oh, yes, the envelopes. Fred was always wandering around with an envelope these days. Someone was always leaving, or some friend of the watch was in trouble, or there was a raffle, or the tea money was low again, or some complicated explanation, so Vimes just put some money in. Simplest way. Old smelly slider. You should have mentioned it he said reproachfully. You've been working hard, sir. Any other street news you haven't mentioned, Captain? Not that I can think of, sir. All right. Well, see which way the wind is blowing, very carefully, and trust no one. Carrot looked worried. Uh, I can trust Angua, can't I? He said. Well, of course you... And you, presumably. Me? Well, obviously, that goes without saying... Corporal Littlebottom, she can be very helpful. Cheery, yes, certainly you could trust Chit. Sergeant Detritus, I always thought he was very tr Detritus, oh yes, he... Nobby, should I? 
Carrot, I understand what he means, said Angua, tugging his arm. Carrot looked a little crestfallen. I've never liked, you know, underhand things, he mumbled. I don't want any written reports, said Vimes, grateful for that small mercy. This is unofficial, but officially unofficial, if you see what I mean. Angua nodded. Carrot just stayed looking dismal. She's a werewolf, thought Vimes, of course she understands. And you think a man who is technically a dwarf would be able to fold his head around the idea of subterfuge? Look, just listen to the streets, said Vimes. The streets know everything. Talk to Blind Hugh. I'm afraid he passed away last month, said Carrot. Did he? No one told me. I thought I sent you a memo, sir. Vimes glanced guiltily at his overloaded desk and then shrugged. Have a quiet look at things. Get to the bottom of things. And trust no... Trust practically no one. All right? Except trustworthy people. Come on. Open up. Watch business. Corporal Nobbs pulled at Sergeant Colan's sleeve and whispered in his ear. Er, uh, not watch business, said Colan, pounding the door again. Nothing to do with a watch at all. We're all just, er, uh, civilians, all right? The door opened a crack. Yes, said a voice that counted its small change. We have to ask some questions, missus. Are you the watch? said the voice. No, I think I just made that clear. Peace off, copper, the door slammed. You sure this is the right place, Sarge? Harry Chestnut said he saw Ossie going in here. Come on, open up. Everyone's looking at us, Sarge, said Nobby. Doors and windows had opened all along the street. And don't call me Sarge when we're in plain clothes. Right you are, Fred. That's... Colon hesitated in an agony of status. Well, that's... That's Frederick to you, Nobby. And they're giggling, Fred. Uh, ick, Frederick. We don't want to make a cock-up of this, Nobby. Right, Frederick. And that's Cecil, thank you. Cecil? That is my name, said Nobby coldly. Have it your way, said Colin. Just remember who's the superior civilian around here, all right? He hammered on the door again. We hear you've got a room to let, missus, he yelled. Brilliant, Frederick, said Nobby. That was bloody brilliant. Well, I am the sergeant, right, Colin whispered. No, uh, yeah, right. Well, you just remember that, right? The door snapped open. The woman within had one of those faces that had settled over the years as though it had been made of butter and then left in the sun. But age hadn't been able to do much with her hair. It was a violent ginger and piled up like a threatening thunderhead. Room? You should have said, she said. Two dollars a week, no pets, no cooking, no women after six a.m. If you don't want it, thousands do. Are you with the circus? You look like you're with the circus. Plain clothes was the problem. Both the men had been used to uniforms all their lives. Sergeant Colan's only suit had been bought by a man two stone lighter and ten years younger, so the buttons creaked under tension. And Nobby's idea of plain clothes was the ribbon and bell bedecked costume he wore as a leading member of the Ankh-Morpork Folk Dance and Song Society. Small children had followed them in the street to see where the show was going to be. We're... Colon began, and then stopped. There were undoubtedly a large number of things to be apart from policemen, but there and then he couldn't think of any of them. Uh, actors, said Nobby. 
"'Then it's payment a week in advance,' said the woman, "'and no filthy foreign habits. "'This is a respectable house,' she added, "'in defiance of evidence so far. "'We ought to see the room first, said Colan. "'Oh, the choosy sort, eh?' "'She led them upstairs. "'The room vacated so terminally by Ossie was small and bare. "'A few items of clothing hung on nails in the wall, "'and a heap of wrappers and greasy bags "'indicated that Ossie had been a man who ate, as it were, off the street. "'Whose is this stuff?' said Sergeant Colon. "'Oh, he's gone now. "'I told him he'd be out if he didn't pay up. "'I'll throw it all out afore you settle in.' "'We'll get rid of it for you,' said Sergeant Colon. "'He fumbled in his pouch and produced a couple of dollars. "'Here you are, Miss... Uh, Mrs... Spent,' said Mrs. Spent. "'She gave them a lopsided look. "'Are you both stopping here, or what?' "'Nah, I've just come along as his chaperone,' said Colon, giving her a friendly grin. "'He has to fight women off when they find out about his sexual magnetism.' "'Mrs. Spent gave the shocked Nobby a sharp look.' and bustled out of the room. "'What do you go and say that for?' said Nobby. "'It's got rid of her, hasn't it? "'You were having a go at me, don't deny it, "'just because I'm going through a bit of emotional what's-name, eh? "'It was just a joke, Nobby, just a joke.' Nobby peered under the narrow bed. "'Wow!' he said, all emotional what's-names forgotten. "'What is it? What is it?' said Colon. "'It looks like a complete run of bows and ammo, and—' Nobby pulled another stack of badly engraved magazines out into the light. Here's warrior of fortune, look, and practical siege weapons. Colon leafed through page after page of very similar-looking people holding very similar weapons of personal destruction. You've got to be a bit odd to sit around all day reading this kind of thing, he said. Yeah, said Nobby. Here, don't put that one back. That's last August's issue. I ain't got that one. Hang on, there's a box right at the back. He wriggled out, towing a small box with him. It was locked, but the cheap metal gave away when he accidentally levered at the lid. Silver coins gleamed. Lots and lots of them. Whoops, he muttered. We're in trouble now. That's Clatchian money, that is, said Colon. Sometimes people slip you one instead of half a dollar in your change. Look, there's all curly writing on them. "'We're in big trouble,' said Nobby. "'No, no, no. This is a clue, what we have found by patient detectorin,' said Sergeant Colon. "'And it's going to be a feather in our caps, and no mistake when Mr. Vimes hears about it.' "'How much do you reckon there is?' "'Gotta be hundreds and hundreds of dollars worth,' said Colon. "'And that's a lot of money to a Clatchian. You can probably live like a king for a year and a dollar in Clatch.' It wasn't very patient detectoring, said Nobby doubtfully. All I did was look under the bed. Ah, but that's because you is trained, said Colon. Your basic civilian wouldn't think of that right. <laughs> it all begins to make sense. Does it? Why would the Clatchians give him money to shoot a Clatchian, said Nobby. Colon tapped the side of his nose. Politics, he said. Oh, Politics, said Nobby. Oh, well, oh, oh, oh. politics, I see. Yeah. Politics, right. So, why? Aha, said Colon again, tapping the other side of his nose. Why are you picking your nose, Sarge? I'm tapping it, said Colon severely. That's to show I'm in the know. 
in the nose, said Nobby cheerfully. It's just the sort of underhand cunning thing they do, said Colon. Paying us to kill them, said Nobby. Ah, you see, some clatchian knob gets topped here, and then they can send a snotty note saying, You killed our big knob, you foreign nephews of dogs. This means war. See? Perfect excuse. Do you need an excuse to have a war? said Nobby. I mean, who for? Can't you just say, You got lots of cash and land, but I've got a big sword, so divvy up right now, chop chop? That's what I'd do said Corporal Nobbs, military strategist. And I wouldn't even say that until after I'd attacked. Ah, but that's because you don't know about politics, said Colon. You can't do that stuff anymore. Mark my words, this case has got politics written all over it. That's why old Vimes put me on it, depend upon it. Politics. Young carrots all very well, but you need a experienced man of the world in these delicate political situations. You've certainly got the nose tapping just right, said Nobby. I generally miss. But he felt troubled, if not in his nose, then in whatever small organ propelled his blood around his body. This didn't feel right. Nothing much in Nobby's life had ever felt right, so he knew very well how the feeling felt. He looked up at the bare walls and down at the rough floorboards. There's a bit of sand on the floor, he said. Another clue, then, said Colon happily. A Clatchian has been here. Bugger all else but sand in Clatch. Still got so many sandals. Nobby opened the window. It gave on to a gently sloping roof. Someone could get through it easily and be away over the tiles and into the maze of chimneys. He could have gone in and out this way, Sarge, he volunteered. Good point, Nobby. Write that down. Evidence of conniving and sneaking around. Nobby peered down. Here. Yeah. There's glass outside, Fred. Sergeant Colon joined him at the stricken window. One of the panes had been smashed. Outside, glass glittered on the tiles. That could be a, a clue, eh? said Nobby, hopefully. It certainly is, said Sergeant Colon. See, the glass fell outside the window. Everyone knows you look at which way the glass falls. I reckon he was just testing his bow, and it went off while he was loaded. That's clever, Sarge, said Nobby. That's detectorin', said Colon. It's no good just looking at things, Nobby. You gotta think straight, too. Uh, Cecil, Sarge. That's Frederick, Cecil. Come on, I think we've wrapped this up nicely. Old Vimes says he wants a report toot sweet. Nobby looked out of the broken window. The roof abutted the end wall of a much larger warehouse. For a moment he found himself thinking bendy rather than straight, but he reasoned that his thinking was only a corporal's thinking and worth far less per thought than a sergeant's thinking, so he kept his private thoughts to himself. As they went downstairs, Mrs Spent watched them suspiciously through a barely opened doorway at the far end of the hall, clearly ready to slam it shut at the first suggestion of any sexual magnetism. "'It's not as if I even know where to get a sexual magnet,' Nobby muttered. "'And she didn't even laugh.' Also, we went to the bow shops in the Street of Cunning Artificers and showed the iconograph to the man in Burley and Strong in the Arm who vouchsafed that is him, e.g. he was referring to the diseased. Oh, my. Vime's lips moved slightly as his gaze went back up the page. 
Also, in addition to the Clatchian money, you could tell one of them had been there because of, e.g., the sand on the floor. He'd still got sand in his sandals, murmured Vimes. Good grief. Sam? Vimes looked up from his reading. Your soup will be cold, said Lady Sybil from the far end of the table. You've been holding that spoonful in the air for the last five minutes by the clock. Sorry, dear. What are you reading? Oh, just a little masterpiece, said Vimes, pushing Fred Colon's report aside. Interesting, is it? said Lady Sybil, a little sourly. Practically unparalleled, said Vimes. The only things they haven't found are the bunch of dates and the camel hidden under the pillow. Belatedly, his nuptial radar detected a certain chilliness from the far side of the cruet. Is, uh, there's something wrong, dear, he said. Can you remember when we last had dinner together, Sam? Tuesday, wasn't it? That was the Guild of Merchants' annual dinner, Sam. Vimes's brow wrinkled. But, uh, you were there too, weren't you? A further subtle change in the Dragon House quotient told him that this was not a well-chosen answer. And then you rushed off afterwards because of that business with the barber in Gleam Street. Sweeney Jones, said Vimes. Well, he was killing people, Sybil. The best you could say is that he didn't mean to. He was just very bad at shaving. But you didn't have to go, I'm sure. Policing's a 24-hour job, dear. Only for you. Your constables do their ten hours and that's it. But you're always working. It's not good for you. You're always running around during the day, and when I wake up in the middle of the night, there's always a cold space beside me. The dots hung in the air, the ghosts of words unsaid. Little things, thought Vimes. That's how a war starts. There's so much to do, Sybil, he said as patiently as he could. There's always been a lot to do, and the bigger the watch gets, the more there is to do. Have you noticed that? Vimes nodded. That was true. Rotors, receipts, notebooks, reports. The watch might or might not be making a difference in the city, but it was certainly frightening a lot of trees. You ought to delegate, said Lady Sybil. So he tells me, muttered Vimes. Pardon? Just thinking aloud, dear. Vimes pushed the paperwork away. I'll tell you what. Let's have an evening in, he said. There's a nice fire in the drawing room. Er, uh, no, Sam, there isn't. Hasn't young Forthright lit it? Forthright was the boy. It came as news to Vimes that this was an official servant position, but the boy's job was to light the fires, clean the privies, help the gardener, and take the blame. He's gone off to be a drummer boy in the Duke of Eol's regiment, said Lady Sybil. Him too. He seemed a bright lad. Isn't he too young? He said he was going to lie about his age. I hope he lies about his musical ability. I've heard him whistling. Vimes shook his head. Whatever possessed him to do such a daft thing? He thinks the uniform will impress the girls. Sybil gave him a gentle smile. An evening at home suddenly began to seem very inviting. Well, it won't take a genius to find the woodshed, said Vimes, and then we can bolt the doors and... One of the aforesaid doors shook to the sound of frantic knocking. Vimes caught Sybil's gaze. Go on, then, answer it, she sighed and sat down. The door admitted Corporal Littlebottom, seriously out of breath. 
You've got to come quick, sir. It, it, it's murder this time. Vimes looked helplessly at his wife. Of course you must go, she said. Angua brushed out her hair in front of the mirror. I don't like this, said Carrot. It's not a proper way to behave. She patted him on the shoulder. Don't worry, she said. Vimes explained it all. You're acting as though we're doing something wrong. I like being a watchman, said Carrot, still in the mournful depths. And you've got to wear a uniform. If you don't wear a uniform, it's like spying on people. He knows I think that. Angua looked at his short red hair and honest ears. I've taken a lot of the work off his shoulders, Carrot went on. He doesn't have to go on patrol at all, but he still tries to do everything. Perhaps he doesn't want you to be quite so helpful, said Angua, as tactfully as possible. It's not as if he's getting any younger either. I've tried to point that out. That was kind of you. And I've never worn plain clothes. On you, they'll never be very plain, said Angua, pulling on her coat. It was a relief to be out of that armour. As for Carrot, there was no disguising him. The size, the ears, the red hair, the expression of muscular good-naturedness. I suppose a werewolf is in plain clothes all the time when you think about it, said Carrot. Thank you, Carrot, and you're absolutely right. I just don't feel comfortable living a lie. Walk a mile on these paws. Pardon? Oh, nothing. Gorif's son, Janil, had been angry. He didn't know why. The anger was built up of a lot of things. The firebomb last night was a big part. So were some of the words he'd been hearing in the street. He'd had an argument with his father about sending that food round to the watchhouse this morning. They were an official part of the city. They had those stupid badges. They had uniforms. He was angry about a lot of things, including the fact that he was 13. So when at nine in the evening, while his father was baking bread, the door had slammed back and a man had rushed in, Janil had pulled his father's elderly crossbow from under the counter and aimed it where he thought the heart was and pulled the trigger. Carrot stamped his feet once or twice and looked around. Here, he said, I was standing here and the prince was in that direction. Angua obediently walked across the square. Several people turned to look curiously at Carrot. All right, stop. No, on a bit. Stop. Turn a little bit to the left. I mean, my left. Uh, back a bit. Now, throw your arms up. He walked over to her and followed her gaze. He was shot from the university. Looks like the library building, said Angua. But a wizard wouldn't do it, surely. They keep out of that sort of thing. Oh, it's not too hard to get in there, even when the gates are shut, said Carrot. Let's try the unofficial way, shall we? OK. Carrot? Yes? The, uh, false moustache. Mm, it's not you, you know, and the nose is far too pink. Doesn't it make me look inconspicuous? No. And the hat? I, I should lose the hat, too. It's a good hat, she added quickly, but a brown bowler is not your style. It doesn't suit you. Exactly, said Carrot. If it was my style, people would know it's me, right? I mean, it makes you look like a twerp, Carrot. Do I normally look like a twerp? No, not... Aha! Carrot fumbled in the pocket of his large brown overcoat. I got this book of disguises from the joke shop in Phaedra Road. Look, funny thing, Nobby was in there buying stuff too. I asked him why, and he said it was desperate measures. What do you think he meant by that? 
I can't imagine, said Angua. It's just amazing the stuff they've got. False hair, false noses, false beards, even false... He hesitated and began to blush. Even false, you know, chests for ladies. But I can't imagine for the life of me why they'd want to disguise those. <laughs> he probably couldn't, Angua thought. She took the very small book from Carrot and glanced through it. She sighed. Carrot, these disguises are meant for a potato. Are they? Look, they're all on potatoes, see? I thought that was just for display. Carrot, it's got Mr. Spuddyface on it. Behind his thick black moustache, Carrot looked hurt and perplexed. What does a potato want a disguise for? he said. They'd reached the alley alongside the university that had been known informally as Scholar's Entry for so many centuries that this was now on a nameplate at one end. A couple of student wizards went past. The unofficial entrance to the university has always been known only to students. What most students failed to remember was that the senior members of the faculty had also been students once, and also liked to get out and about after the official shutting of the gates. This naturally led to a certain amount of embarrassment and diplomacy on dark evenings. Carrot and Angua waited patiently as a few more students climbed over, followed by the dean. "'Good evening, sir,' said Carrot politely. "'Good evening to you, Spuddy,' said the dean, and ambled off into the night. "'You see?' "'Ah, but he didn't call me Carrot,' said Carrot. "'The principal is sound.' They dropped down onto the lawns of academia and headed for the library. "'It'll be shut,' said Angua. "'Remember we have a man on the inside,' said Carrot, and knocked. The door opened a little way. Ooh. Carrot raised his horrible little round hat. Good evening, sir. I wonder if we could come in. It's watch business. Ooh. 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 Um, what did he say? said Angua. If you must know, he said, my goodness me, a walking potato, said Carrot. The librarian wrinkled his nose at Angua. He did not like the smell of werewolves but he beckoned them inside and then left them waiting while he knuckled back to his desk and rummaged in a drawer. He produced a watch-special constable's badge on a string, which he hung around the general area where his neck should have been, and then stood as much to attention as an orangutan can, which is not a great deal. The central ape gets the idea, but outlying areas are slow to catch on. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Was that how may I be of assistance, Captain Tuba? said Angua. We need to have a look on the fifth floor overlooking the square, said Carrot, a shade coldly. Ook, ook, ook. He says that's just old storerooms, said Carrot. And that last ook, said Angua. Mr. Horrible Hat, said Carrot. Still, he hasn't worked out who you are, eh, said Angua. The fifth floor was a corridor of airless rooms, smelling sadly of old unwanted books. They were stacked not on shelves but on wide racks bundled up with string. A lot of them were battered and missing their covers. Judging by what remained, though, they were old textbooks that not even the most ardent bibliophile could treasure. Carrot picked up a torn copy of Waddley's Occult Primer. Several loose pages fell out. Angua picked one up. Chapter 15, Elementary Necromancy, she read aloud. Lesson 1, Correct Use of Shovel. She put it down again and sniffed the air. The presence of the librarian filled the nasal room like an elephant in a matchbox, but... Someone else has been in here, she said, in the last couple of days. 
Could you leave us, sir? When it comes to odours, you're a bit, um, forthright. Ooh! The librarian nodded at Carrot, shrugged at Angua, and ambled out. Don't move, said Angua. Stay right where you are, Carrot. Don't disturb the air. She inched forward carefully. Her ears told her the librarian was down the corridor because she could hear the floorboards creaking, but her nose told her that he was still here. He was a little fuzzy, but... I'm going to have to change, she said. I can't get a proper picture this way. It's too strange. Carrot obediently shut his eyes. She'd forbidden him to watch her en route from a human to a wolf because of the unpleasant nature of the shapes in between. Back in Überwald, people went from one shape to the other as naturally as ordinary humans would put on a different coat, but even there it was considered polite to do it behind a bush. When he reopened them, Angua was slinking forward, her whole being concentrated in her nose. The olfactory presence of the librarian was a complex shape, a mere purple blur where he had been moving, but almost a solid figure where he'd been standing still. Hands, face, lips. They'd be just the centre of an expanding cloud in a few hours' time, but now she could still smell them out. There must be only the tiniest air currents in here. There weren't even any flies buzzing in the dead air to cause a ripple of disturbance. She edged nearer to the window. Vision was a mere shadowy presence, providing a charcoal sketch of a room over which the scents painted their glorious colours. By the window. By the window, yes. A man had stood there, and by the scent of it he hadn't moved for some time. The smell wavered in the air on the edge of her nasal skill. The curling, billowing traces said that the window had been opened and closed again, and was there just the merest, tiniest suggestion that he'd held an arm out in front of him? Her nose raced, trying to form original shapes from the patterns hanging in the room like dead smoke. When she'd finished, Angua went back to her pile of clothes and coughed politely while she was pulling on her boots. There was a man standing by the window, she said. Long hair, a bit dry, stinks of expensive shampoo. He was the man who nailed the boards back after Rossi got into the barbican. Are you sure? Is this nose ever wrong? Sorry, go on. I'd say he was heavy set, a bit bulky for his height. He doesn't wash a lot, but when he does, he uses windpike soap, the cheap brand, but expensive shampoo, which is odd, quite new boots and a green coat. You can smell the colour? No, the dye. It comes from Stolat, I think, and I think he shot a bow. An expensive bow. There's a hint of silk in the air, and that's what the strongest bowstrings are made of, isn't it? And you wouldn't put one of those on a cheap bow. Carrot stood by the window. He got a good view, he said, and looked down at the floor, and then at the sill, and on the shelves nearby. How long was he here? Two or three hours, I'd say. He didn't move around much. No, or smoke, or spit. He just stood and waited. A professional. Mr. Vimes was right. A lot more professional than Ozzy, said Angua. Green coat, said Carrot, as if thinking aloud. Green coat. Green coat. Oh, and bad dandruff, said Angua, standing up. Snowy slopes, shouted Carrot. What? Really bad dandruff? Oh, yes, it was. That's why they called him Snowy, said Carrot. Daisyville slopes, the man with the reinforced comb. But I'd heard he'd moved to Stolat. In unison, they said, 
where the dye comes from. Is he good with a bow? said Angua. Very good. He's good at killing people he never met, too. He's an assassin, is he? Oh, no, he just kills people for money. No style. Snowy can't read and write. Carrot scratched his head in sympathetic recollection. He doesn't even look at complicated pictures. We'd have got him last year, but he shook his head fast and got away while we were trying to dig out Nobby. Well, well, I wonder where he's staying. Don't ask me to follow him in these streets. Thousands of people will have walked over the trail. Oh, there's people who will know. Someone sees everything in this town. Mr. Slopes. Snowy Slopes gingerly felt his neck, or at least the neck of his soul. The human soul tends to keep the shape of the original body for some time after death. Habit is a wonderful thing. Uh, who the hell was he? he said. Not someone you know, said Death. Well, no, I don't know many people who cut my head off. Snowy Slopes's body had knocked against the table as it fell. Several bottles of medicated shampoo now dripped and mixed their contents onto the other more intimate fluids from the Slopes' corpse. That stuff with the special oil in it cost me nearly four dollars, said Snowy, yet somehow it all seemed slightly irrelevant now. Death happens to other people. The other person in this case had been him. That is, the one down there, not the one standing here looking at it. In life, Snowy hadn't even been able to spell metaphysical, but he was already beginning to view life in a different way. From the outside, for a start. Four dollars, he repeated. I never even had time to try it. It wouldn't have worked, said Death, patting the man on a fading shoulder. But if I might suggest that you look on the bright side, it will no longer be necessary. No more dandruff, said Snowy, now quite transparent and fading fast. Ever, said Death. Trust me on this. Commander Vimes ran down the darkened streets, trying to buckle on his breastplate as he ran. All right, Cheery, what's happening? They say a Clatchian killed someone, sir. There's a mob up in Scandal Alley, and it's looking bad. I was on the desk, and I thought you ought to be told, sir. Right. And anyway, I couldn't find Captain Carrot, sir. A little bit of acid ink scribbled its subtle entry on the ledger of Vimes's soul. Oh, gods. So who's the officer in charge? Sergeant Detritus, sir. It seemed to the dwarf that she was suddenly standing still. Commander Vimes had become a rapidly disappearing blur. With the calm expression of someone who was methodically doing his duty, Detritus picked up a man and used him to hit some other men. When he had a clear area around him and a groaning heap of former rioters, he climbed the heap and cupped his hands around his mouth. Listen to me, ye people! A troll shouting at the top of his voice could easily be heard above a riot. When he seemed to have their attention, he pulled a scroll out of his breastplate and waved it over his head. This is the riot act, he said. You know what that means? It means if an I reads it out and you don't disp... disp... Uh, go away, the watch can use deadly force. You understand? <coughs> what did you just use then? moaned someone from underneath his feet. That was you helping the watch, said Detritus, shifting his weight. He unrolled the scroll. Although there was some scuffling in alleyways and shouts from the next street, a ring of silence expanded outwards from the troll. An almost genetic component of the citizens of Ankh-Morpork was their ability to spot an opportunity for amusement. 
Detritus held the document at arm's length, and then, a few inches from his face, he tried turning it round a few times. His lips moved unsteadily. Finally, he leaned down and showed it to Constable Visit. What's this word? That's whereby, Sergeant. I knew that. He straightened up again. Whereby it is... Beads of the troll equivalent of sweat began to form on Detritus's forehead. Whereby it is acknowledged. Acknowledged, whispered Constable Visit. I knew that. Detritus stared at the paper again and then gave up. You don't want to stand here listening to me all day, he bellowed. This is the riot act and you've all got to read it, right? Pass it round. What if we don't read it, said a voice in the crowd. You've got to read it. It's legal. And then what happens? Then I shoot you, said Detritus. That's not allowed, said another voice. You've got to shout stop armed watchman first. Sure, that suits me, said Detritus. He shrugged one huge shoulder to bring his crossbow under his arm. It was a siege bow intended to be mounted on the cart. The bolt was six feet long. It's harder to hit running targets. He released the safety catch. Anyone finishing reading that thing yet? Sergeant! Vimes pushed his way through the crowd, and it was a crowd now. Ankh-Morpork was always a good audience. There was a clang as Detritus saluted. Were you proposing to shoot these people in cold blood, Sergeant? No, sir. Just a warning shot in the head, sir. Really? Just give me a moment to talk to them, then. Vimes looked at the man next to him. He was holding a flaming torch in one hand and a long length of wood in the other. He gave Vimes the nervously defiant stare of someone who has just felt the ground shift under his feet. Vimes pulled the torch towards him and lit a cigar. What's happening here, friend? The Clatchians have been shooting people, Mr Vimes. Unprovoked attack. Really? People have been killed. Who? I, uh, there were... Everyone knows they've been killing people. The man's mental footsteps found safer ground. What do they think they are? Coming over here! That's enough, said Vimes. He stood back and raised his voice. I recognise a lot of you, he said, and I know you've got homes to go to. See this? He pulled his baton of office out of his pocket. This says I've got to keep the peace, so in ten seconds I'm going somewhere else to find some peace to keep. But Detritus is going to stay here, and I just hope he doesn't do anything to disgrace the uniform. Or get it very dirty, at least. Irony was not a degree-level subject among the listeners, but the brighter ones recognised Vimes' expression. It said that here was a man hanging on to his patience by his teeth. The mob dispersed, going ragged at the edges as people legged it down side alleys, threw away their makeshift weapons, and emerged at the other end, walking the grave, thoughtful walk of honest citizens. All right, what happened? said Vimes, turning to the troll. We're hearing where this boy shot this man, said Detritus. We got here. Next minute it's raining people from everywhere shouting. He smote him, as Hudrun smote the fleshpots of Ur, said Constable Visit. Constable Visit the Ungodly with Explanatory Pamphlets was a good copper, Vimes always said, and that was his highest term of praise. He was an omnian with his countryman's almost pathological interest in evangelical religion and spent all his wages on pamphlets. He even had his own printing press. The results were handed out to anyone interested, and everyone who wasn't interested as well. 
Even detritus couldn't clear a crowd faster than visit, Vimes said. And on his days off, he could be seen tramping the streets with his colleague, smite the unbeliever with cunning arguments. So far, they hadn't made a single convert. Vimes thought that Visit was probably a really nice man underneath it all, but somehow he could never face the task of finding out. Smote, said Vimes, bewildered. He killed someone. Not by the way the man was cursing, sir, said Detritus. Hit him in the arm. His friends brought him round the watch house to complain. He's a baker on the night shift. He said he was late for work. He come running in to pick up his dinner. Next minute, he's flat on the floor. Vimes walked across the street and tried the door of the shop. It opened a little way and then fetched up against what seemed to be a barricade. Furniture had been piled up against the window as well. How many people were there, constable? A multitude thereof, sir. And four people in here, thought Vimes. A family. The door moved a fraction, and Vimes realised he was ducking even before the crossbow protruded. There was the thung of the string. The bolt tumbled rather than sped. It corkscrewed wildly across the alley and was almost moving sideways when it hit the opposite wall. Look, said Vimes, keeping his body down but raising his voice. Anyone who got hit with that, it must have been an accident. This is the watch. Open the door. Otherwise Detritus will open it. And when he opens the door, it stays open. You know what I mean? There was no reply. All right. Detritus, just step over here. There was a hissed argument inside, and then the sound of scraping as furniture was moved. He tried the door. It swung inwards. The family were at the far end of the room. Vimes felt eight eyes on him. The atmosphere had a hot, worrying feel, spiced with the smell of burnt food. Mr. Goriff was holding the crossbow gingerly, and the expression on his son's face told Vimes a lot of what he needed to know. All right, he said. Now you all listen to me. I'm not arresting anyone right now, you hear? This sounds like one of those things that make his lordship yawn. But you'd do better spending the rest of the night in the watch-house. I can't spare the men to stand guard here. Do you understand? I could arrest you, but this is just a request. Mr. Goriff cleared his throat. The man I shot, he began, and left the question and the lie hanging in the air. Vimes forced himself not to glance at the boy. Not badly hurt, he said. He... Ran in, said Mr. Goriff, and after last night, you thought you were being attacked again and grabbed the crossbow. Yes, said the boy defiantly before his father could speak. There was a brief argument in Clatchian. Then Mr. Goriff said, We must leave the house for your own good. We'll try to have someone watch it. Now get something together and go off with the sergeant and give me that crossbow. Goriff handed it over with a look of relief. It was a typical Saturday night special, so badly made and erratic that the only safe place to be when it was fired would be directly behind it, and even then you would be running a risk. And then no one had told its owner that under the counter, in a steamy shop and a perpetual rain of grease, wasn't the best place to keep it strung. The string sagged. Probably the only way you could reliably hurt someone with it was to beat them over the head. Vimes waited until they'd been ushered out and took a last look around the room. It wasn't large, in the kitchen behind the shop, something spicy in a pot was boiling dry. After burning his fingers a couple of times, he managed to tip the pot onto the fire to put it out, and then, vaguely remembering his mother doing something like this, put the pot under the pump to soak. Then he barricaded the windows as best he could and went out, locking the door behind him. 
A discreetly obvious Brass Thieves Guild plaque over the door told the world that Mr Goriff had conscientiously paid his annual fee and would not therefore be officially burgled. Ankh-Morpork had a very direct approach to the idea of insurance. When the middleman was cut out, that wasn't a figure of speech. But the world had plenty of less formal dangers, and so Vimes took a piece of chalk out of his pocket and wrote on the door, Under the Protection of the Watch. As an afterthought, he signed it. Sergeant Detritus. In the imaginations of the less civically-minded, the majesty of the rule of law didn't carry anything like as much weight as the dread of Detritus. The Riot Act. Where the hell had he dredged that from? Carrot, probably. It hadn't been used for as long as Vimes could remember, and that was no wonder when you knew what it really did. Even Vetinari would hesitate to use it. Now it was nothing more than a phrase. Thank goodness for trollishy literacy. It was when Vimes stood back to admire his handiwork that he saw the glow in the sky over Park Lane almost at the same time as he heard the clatter of iron boots on the street. Oh, hello, little bottom, he said. What now? Don't tell me. Someone set fire to the Clatchian embassy. All right, sir, said the dwarf. She stood uncertainly in the middle of the alley, looking worried. Well, said Vimes, er, you said... With a sinking feeling, Vimes remembered that the generic dwarfish skill with iron was matched only by the fumble-fingered grasp of irony. The Clatchian embassy is really on fire. Yes, sir, 